0: It's a very short reading this morning, but I'm really looking forward, as I'm sure you are, to understanding more about Peter's life and and his words that he's put here. Well, God's inspired him to to write, to, to serve us. And so, yeah, let's just open our hearts and minds as we come to this time of God's word and hearing from Joel. So beginning at 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's not much. But it's powerful. (laughs) So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. Thank you, John.
1: Well, yes, today we are commencing a new series looking at uh, the letter of 1 Peter. The series title is called Living Hope. And I'm sure that by the end of today, you'll have a clear understanding as to why that is the series title. It's taken from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where we read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. The letter of 1 Peter was written to uh, dispersed or scattered Christians who were suffering persecution. And Peter, the author, wants to remind them of the hope, the living hope that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ to encourage them in the face of persecution. Now, 1 Peter is a letter and we are going to, we're going to really savour this letter, And so over a series of 10 messages, we will very slowly unpack this letter and, and really do it justice. And I trust that that's a real blessing for us as a church community. But letters are intended to be read from start to finish. And so as one group in this church has already decided, I want to encourage us each, every one, to set aside a small amount of time, only 10 to 15 minutes it'll take you, once a week to read the letter from start to finish. Uh, As we journey through this letter on Sundays, and for those who are involved in growth groups, as we unpack uh, this in our growth groups, it would be helpful for us to consistently come back to the overall letter itself. Letters are indeed meant to be read from start to finish, and so I encourage you to read it in your own quiet devotional time uh, as a whole letter, and then as we come and understand the separate parts, you'll get so much more out of it. Now, you might recall that back in 2016, we did a two part series studying the life of Peter. The first series was called Peter the Disciple Knowing Jesus. And and the second series that we did was called Peter the Apostle Sharing Jesus. The, uh, The purpose of this series, I guess, was to really speak into our church's mission statement, which is a loving church, knowing Jesus, and sharing Jesus. And in the life of Peter, we see someone who knew Jesus intimately and shared Jesus powerfully. Um, Just a really quick overview of Peter's life. So Peter was a fisherman. And we read in Luke 5, 1 to 11 of his calling. Uh, And there's the miraculous catch of fish. Peter's been out fishing all night with his two associates, John and James. And they didn't catch anything. And then in the morning, Jesus jumps into their boat to start teaching and invites them to cast the net to the other side. And I'm sure many of you know the story. The net is full of fish. Peter kind of falls to his knees in repentance and says, Lord, go away from me. I am a guilty, a sinful man. And Jesus invites Peter to follow him. He renames him Peter. His name is originally Simon. And Jesus renames him Cephas in Aramaic or Petros, which is Peter um, in Greek. And we know him as Peter today, which means the rock. Peter was a disciple of Jesus for three years. He became the natural spokesperson for the 12 disciples. Um, He significantly confesses Jesus, the Christ, as the Son of God. And Jesus says that that was revealed to him through God. He's part of Jesus' inner circle, which is kind of like the two I see. So there's 12 disciples and then there's the inner three. Uh, And in fact, it was interesting that these three guys already worked together. They were already close associates and friends, and they become the three closest followers of Jesus who were there with him at significant times, such as the transfiguration, which Peter was able to witness. We know Peter as the disciple who had the courage to get out of the boat and walk on water. He also had the the tenacity to sever the ear of the guard in the Garden of Gethsemane um, in Jesus' defense. He boasted that he would never, ever deny his Lord, but then went on to subsequently deny Jesus three times. Jesus, in Matthew 16, reaffirms Peter as the rock and says that he will, in fact, use Peter as a primary instrument to build Jesus' church. And then in John 21, we read the beautiful account of Peter's reinstatement, where three times Jesus commissions and commands Peter to feed his sheep. And indeed, 1 Peter is a wonderful example of Peter the Apostle being obedient to that very command to feed my sheep. Sheep. Our second series looked at Peter the Apostle and we particularly looked at Peter's passion in sharing Jesus. We looked at Pentecost and we see an incredibly different Peter to the Peter that denies Jesus three times. We see a Peter who preaches with power and passion at Pentecost and 3,000 people are added to the Lord's number that day. And then in Acts 3, Peter heals a lame beggar. He is a man on fire for the Lord. In Acts 4, he preached boldly before the, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court, the high court. There were 23 rabbis that sat on the Supreme Court, the, the Sanhedrin, to make decisions about moral and religious and legal matters. And Peter st- stood before them and, pr- and proudly and, and confidently and boldly proclaimed the message of Jesus. Arrests, beatings and threats couldn't dampen Peter's resolve to preach Christ. And then kind of, I guess, the bookends of Peter's ministry in Acts is uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which is kind of like the, the birth of the, the church amongst the Jews. So many people that day coming to faith who were Jewish Christians. The Cornelius Acts, uh, incident in Acts chapter 10 is kind of the, the Gentile Pentecost, where Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, a God-fearing man, but not a Christian, um, the Lord uses a dream that Peter has and encourages him or instructs him to go to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius becomes a believer and all of his family. And there's a sense of the gospel now being open both to Jews and to Gentiles. So that's a little bit of an overview of Peter's life this letter that we're now reading, he was, was written as an older man and he is writing to uh, a church that has been scattered. What we're going to do is just walk through these couple of verses and what that is going to do is it's really going to set up the context of the series and help us understand the letter in better context. As this week I've looked at these four, a couple of verses that we're going to consider this morning. And then just this morning, I went back and read the whole five chapters of the letter. It was amazing how much more sense the whole letter made, understanding the context in which Peter writes. He is writing to encourage the believers who have been persecuted and scattered. 1 Peter 1, 1 1-2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, it's interesting, that's the introduction or the, 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 the first greeting. It's actually helpful if we look at the final greeting. So kind of, it's not really a conclusion, but these are Peter's last words. It'll give us a little bit more understanding of the context as well. 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14, this is how he finishes off the letter. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There you have the opening and the closing of Peter's letter. What can we glean from this? Um, Well, obviously, Peter is the author, um, Peter writes as a pastor. He's writing to scattered house churches and he writes as a pastor with a pastor's heart. He has a pastoral concern for these believers. Uh, It is understood that the letter of 1 Peter and indeed 2 Peter as well are written from Rome. You would have recalled in Peter chapter 5, there's a reference there to Babylon, she who was in Babylon. Babylon is kind of like code word for Rome. So at this time in Peter's life, he is in Rome and he will in fact die a martyr's death in Rome. But the letter is written from Rome in the mid to late AD 60s. It's written to all of these scattered house churches in the Asia Minor province, which is modern day Turkey. It's written to a Jewish and a Gentile audience. Now it's been fascinating. Some commentators say it's just written to a Jewish audience audience. And other commentators say it's written to a Gentile audience. So I think we can, I think it's fair to say it would be written to both. Um, many of the Christians that fled Rome would have been Jewish Christians. So they would have come to uh, the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and if you converted from Judaism to Christianity. But as they went and fled and, and as, as the gospel spread, many Gentile believers would have also come into the family of God. And so in these house churches, there would have no doubt been a mix of both Jewish and Gentile believers. But Peter's audience is a Christian audience. Peter's audience is to those who put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, It was, as we read in in chapter 5, Peter himself says, I have written to you briefly encouraging you. So the purpose of his writing is to encourage these believers. And there's also a mention of Mark there. Um, And so does my son, Mark. Peter and Mark have a very close relationship. Mark is also known as John Mark. And this is the Mark of the Gospel Mark. Uh, In fact, it is widely... Um, accepted that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. It is Peter's reflections of his life with Jesus that Mark wrote down. Mark wasn't an eyewitness... Oh, sorry, John Mark was an eyewitness of Jesus, as was Peter. It kind of adds up because, if you might recall from when we've studied the gospel of Mark, it is a fast-paced gospel. And that fits with Peter's life He kind of makes rash decisions, doesn't he? And so it actually, it really, it all adds up. So there's a little bit of kind of context and purpose and place. Um, So let's just break it down. 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Really simple, really simple, but three things we can identify in this opening statement. Firstly, it's a statement of identity. He's not introducing himself as Simon or as Cephas. He's introducing himself as Peter, the name that Jesus gave him. And as I went back and just went over briefly the notes of when we looked at Peter's life back in 2016, I remember the, the powerful um, lesson we learnt when, when Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter was that Jesus doesn't see us for who we are. He sees us for who we will become. And we see in this letter that Peter has gone an amazing distance from where he first started out as a simple, common fisherman to now an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is confident and firm in that identity. And friends, that is a wonderful message for each of us here today, is that when Jesus sees us and calls us by name, He doesn't just see us for who we are now. He sees us for who we are becoming in Him. And I want to encourage you in that. God sees you right at the very end. He sees the finished product. Often we sit in the mess and the struggle of who we are now. But God sees the finished product and he delights in you. He delights in you. Uh, this is a statement of authority. He is an apostle. And an apostle is one who has been st- stood apart by Jesus himself to preach and proclaim the gospel. And there is an authority that comes with that title, apostle. There are not many apostles. There were 12 And Peter is one of those apostles who walked with Jesus very closely. He knew the life and ministry of Jesus and who Jesus very specifically commissioned to be his representative, to be his spokesperson. So Peter knows who his identity in Christ is. He knows his calling in Christ is to be an apostle. Also, there is a confidence in Peter's statement of his apostleship. Unlike Paul, because of Paul's history of persecuting Christians, Paul constantly had to defend his apostleship. We don't see this with Peter. There is no need for Peter to defend who he is as an apostle. Just as an example there in Galatians chapter 1, we see a greeting of Paul. And there is a tone of defensiveness in it. Paul an apostle, and then immediately he defends, you see, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. We don't see this in Peter. There's no defensiveness in his title there. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As I mentioned, these are all um, regions of what was then known as Asia Minor, what is now known as modern Turkey. And you can just sort of see the region um, here on the map of where those communities were in Peter's time. If we actually look at a map of, uh, of, of of today, you can see Turkey's over here to your right, and Rome is kind of in the middle there. Um, can you see where Rome is? Now, I actually just Googled, mapped, Rome to Turkey. You could do it by foot. Uh, there was no motor vehicles back then. It's 3,000 kilometers. Um, that is the same distance as Melbourne to Cairns. So I'm guessing they didn't travel there by foot. That would be kind of impossible. I'm assuming, and I haven't researched this, but I'm assuming they got from Rome to what is now Turkey um, by boat. And the reason I would say that this was the case was because the Apostle Paul and all of his missionary journeys and he went into this region, went there by boat. We are talking, friends, about boat people here. These people have fled religious persecution by boat to a different context. Uh, it's actually fair to say that Peter is writing to boat fleeing refugees. Uh, Peter calls th- th- these believers scattered exiles. They're the words. He uses other, uh, another word that is used for scattered is dispersion or dispersed. Now, if you go back and actually look at the Greek of this word dispersed, it's not random. It, it means as of seed. And the sense of being scattered is, is, is like a farmer who sows seed. Now, when a farmer goes to sow seed, does he just chuck it anywhere haphazardly? No, he's sowing to plant a harvest. And in this context, the harvest is the gospel. Now, for these believers who have fled persecution by boat and end up as foreigners in a different country, in a different context, I'm sure for them they would feel as though this is just some crazy, haphazard scattering or dispersion. But Peter writes to them and says, you're the dispersed ones. You have actually been dispersed for a purpose, for a reason. Uh, The the spread of the gospel is going to continue to permeate throughout the world. And so you find yourself where you are now because the sower has sown the seed. They are called, and again, different translations will refer to these people as exiles, foreigners, aliens, pilgrims, sojourners. I think today we could call them refugees. It's this whole sense of being displaced. You've been taken from your home. You've been taken from your place of comfort and belonging. And you've been sent to somewhere that is totally outside of your your context they find themselves now scattered living in very very different conditions and it was the persecution of Christians that took them to this place and friends it's no different for you and I we may not have been necessarily displaced physically or geographically but the Bible will refer to believers as exiles And just as Moses led the people of Israel out into the desert to be set apart, all of God's children, in a sense, are exiles from this earth because our home is not here, is it? Our citizenship is in heaven. And so all of God's people, in one sense, are exiles, are foreigners, are displaced ones because this is not our true home. We have that dual citizenship. We are citizens of earth but we are, first of all, citizens of heaven. And we need to allow our heavenly citizenship to dictate how we conduct ourselves as earthly citizens. Now, we'll, we'll come to this in a moment, but you, um, Peter talks about being obedient to Jesus. And persecution will come, even today, for those who are obedient to Jesus. The level of obedience to Jesus and to his word will often determine the level of persecution one suffers for their faith. Now, the context of this scattering was from... Uh, is, 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 is with, we need to understand a little bit about the Emperor Nero. Uh, Nero was the emperor at the time, and um, for the little bit I've read about him, he was, he was power-hungry. Um, he had so much power... And and didn't use it well. I was thinking of a, a football player, for example, a very young football player who very quickly rises to popularity and fame and has a lot of money and a lot of power and influence and does not use it well. We see this in the media frequently. Well, Nero's a little bit like that. He rose to power and he did not use it well and he did all kinds of crazy things for his own entertainment and pleasure. In AD 64, there was a huge fire that destroyed much of the city of Rome and economically ruined Rome. Um, Tacitus, who was a Roman s- senator and historian, you might, if, you might recall I mentioned Tacitus when we spoke about Jesus the game changer. Tacitus was not a believer, he wrote about the historical Jesus. He also wrote about Nero. And so we learn from Tacitus that it was suspected that Nero actually started the fire for his own entertainment. It's sickening. He had his own mother killed. And then he framed the Christians. He needed needed an alibi and he framed the Christians. A scapegoat, that's it, Phil. He needed a scapegoat. And so he framed, it was like, who framed Roger Rabbit? He framed the Christians, uh, suggesting that they, in fact, were the ones that started this fire. And he, to punish them, he would have them dipped in tar and then lit on poles uh, to, to, to highlight, these were the ones that started the fire. And so this is the kind of persecution that these believers are living in. And the Christians suffered um, public executions. They became slaves and obviously many fled for their lives. So this is what has pushed these Christians out of Rome into Asia Minor. So they've had to flee that type of terrible persecution. And that's where we find them. Now Peter writes to God's elect to God's elect. And this is a a very loaded theological term. Um, I, I guess what Peter wants to what Peter wants to affirm in these believers, he wants to remind them that God God didn't you didn't reach out to God. God reached out to you. And this is one of the things that I think is so fascinating about baptism. I mentioned this before Baptism is actually just a a witness of what God has done for us. So I just want to dispel the myth that we need to wait until we're somehow ready to be baptised because it's never about what we've done. It's always just a reflection of what God has done for us. But these are the elect people and Peter wants to remind them. He wants to affirm within them uh, that God chose them, that God elected them, that he, he knew that they were his. And I guess that I mentioned that it was a theologically loaded term. We don't really have time to go into this in depth now. This would be a great thing for our growth groups to look at, is this whole tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. Now, interestingly, the tension doesn't so much lie in the Scriptures. The Scriptures actually seem to allow the two ideas to sit side by side. The fact that God is completely sovereign. God knows everything from start to beginning. And in a sense, God knows everyone who will ever be a believer and and the sense that he has chosen them to believe in him. But then at the same time, there's, what about human freedom? What role do people have to play in salvation? Do people actually get the opportunity to choose whether or not they will follow God? Or is it already being predetermined? And the struggle there is, are we just puppets? Um, you know, where is the place of human freedom? And interestingly, we can even see in chapter 1, Peter is very comfortable, I think, to allow these two ideas sit side by side. And I think that's telling of the early church. They probably didn't have the same wrestle that perhaps more modern, and even back when the early church was forming, um, that, that exists. And we just have a look at these verses here. This is just a little further on. Through him, you believe in God. So that's Jesus, Peter's referring to. Through him, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Not that, now that you have been purified. So you can see here, there's a sense of the believer taking responsibility for belief and faith and hope and purification in Christ. And so we can see that Peter is quite comfortable allowing God's sovereignty and human freedom to sit side by side. But he ultimately, he wants to encourage these people by reminding them that God has very specifically, um, in his foreknowledge, chosen them. Now, remember, the context is suffering and persecution. And as I sit with these people and try and think about what it would be like to flee the kind of persecution that they were exposed to and to, now, and to have travelled by boat and to be living in a very different context, having to start all over again, families being divided and so forth. I wonder if these Christians were thinking to themselves, has God abandoned me? Has God left me? I chose to follow Jesus, I chose to follow the living God and this is where I find myself? And I wonder for us too, when we're going through difficult times, when we're suffering for our faith, when things seem like an incredible uphill battle and we might ask ourselves, we might ask God, God, where are you? God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Peter wants to remind these readers God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't abandoned you. You are God's elected ones. God loves you. God knows you. And God has an incredible plan for you. This next word that he uses is these people have been chosen. And there's kind of a threefold explanation for that choosing. So, again, just. Feeding into this language of election is the same language of being chosen. These believers have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, Peter didn't have to refer to God in this instance as God the Father, but he does so. And I think he does because what he wants to communicate, he wants to remind them of the language that Jesus invited all followers to use to God, and that is of Father, to address Him as Father. And in that state of feeling abandoned, in that state of being persecuted, in that state of perhaps wondering, has God left me? Where is God? Peter wants to assure and remind the believers that God indeed is their Heavenly Father. He loves them as a father loves his own children and cares for them deeply in those familial terms. And next he says, through the sanctifying work of, Of the Spirit. Now, much of Peter's letter is concerned with how these believers actually live out their faith as exiles who have been scattered. They find themselves in a very different context to where they once were. Before the persecution of Nero, Christians were really no threat to Rome at all. They were a threat, in fact, to Jews, um, but not to Rome. They were a bit of a threat to Jews because all of a sudden you're taking our age-old traditions, and in a sense you're you're throwing many of them out. Uh, and so that's more where the persecution was coming from. But Peter's letter is really concerned now with how do these scattered exiles live out their faith in the context in which they now find themselves. And what he invites them, what he calls upon them, is to be holy, is to be different. And we're going to see that over the coming weeks. Uh, This is no different from our calling, brothers and sisters. We too are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart, to be different, that we might shine as lights in the dark world. And we can't be holy by ourselves. There's nothing holy in us other than God and His, the work of His Spirit. And we call that process sanctification, where the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts, enters into our lives, and we are led and guided, and we become holy through the empowering and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is reminding these believers... You have been chosen and elected by God, your loving Heavenly Father. You are being sanctified. You are being made holy. You are being made set apart by the Spirit that now dwells within you. And all of this is so that you may be obedient to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus sends his disciples out with that command, the command to baptize believers and to teach believers to be obedient. Everyone who was a disciple understood that to be a disciple went hand in hand with being obedient to Jesus. And if we as believers take Jesus at his word and take his commands at word, we will indeed suffer persecution because we will make so many different choices to that of our world. And I trust that this series will be an encouragement for us to re-examine some of the commands of Jesus and that we as his people may learn to become increasingly obedient to them for the sake of the gospel and for the spread of the gospel. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now again, this is a phrase that has been chosen for a reason. And what Peter is doing in this instance is he is harking back to an incident in Exodus 24. And this incident is after uh, Moses has received the Ten Commandments and the commands for how God's people, the Israelites, are to live. Remember, God has extracted them. He has removed them from slavery and bondage and he has taken them and set them apart to be different so that they may be a light. And they're going to be a light by being different. And so God's people have received the Ten Commandments and then they are now in, they have kind of go through a formal process of entering into a covenant with God. A covenant that basically says, I have done all of this for you. I have removed you from slavery. I have removed you from bondage. I have set you apart. And I have called upon you. I have given you my word now. This is how you are to live, to reflect to the world the holiness of a holy God. And I'm going to enter into this covenant with you that reminds you of the price that has been paid and to remind you of your calling. And so they have this ceremony where the blood of a bull is sprinkled on the people, and it is symbolic of this covenant It is reminding them that God is their rescuer, that God is their deliverer, and that they have been set apart and chosen to be different. And so it's no different for the scattered exiles in Asia Minor. Through Jesus Christ, they have been rescued from sin and from bondage. They have been given the hope of eternal life, and they have now been called to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now this is a powerful image, is it not? The idea of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is it's almost like having a tattoo somewhere visible that is a constant reminder of who I am, of why I am where I am, and that I'm going to choose to be obedient to the one who died for me and to the one who calls me to be holy as God himself is holy, to be sprinkled with his blood. Peter finishes his greetings with these beautiful words that are found in many of the New Testament letters. And you can just hear the pastoral heart, grace and peace be yours in abundance. and where these believers are, and what they've been through, grace and peace would probably feel like the furthest thing from their mind. Peace is the last thing they've experienced. Peter wants to call them up. He wants to call them out of their immediate context and situation, remind them that they are citizens of heaven that they are God's people set apart to be holy as God is holy so that others might see the glory of God. Peter wants to remind them that as followers of Jesus, as those chosen by the Father, as those sanctified through the Spirit, grace and peace are yours. May they be yours. In abundance, What a beautiful opening to a very powerful letter that I so look forward to sharing with you, my friends, over the coming weeks. When we find ourselves in difficult times, struggling, feeling uncertain, when our faith is put to the test, men and women of God, we need to be reminded that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our living hope. Our hope in you is not a blind hope. It is not a dead hope. Rather, it is a living hope because we know that you are alive. We know that you are alive and that you reside in heaven, seated at the right-hand side of the Father. We know that you are alive because you have stamped upon our hearts as a seal of your presence within us, your Holy Spirit, who empowers us to live as foreigners and exiles in a world that is not our own. And I pray... That over the coming weeks, Lord, as we open up the scriptures and examine this wonderful letter of 1 Peter, that you would inspire us and fill us with the living hope of the resurrected, living Lord Jesus, that we might be empowered to live obedient lives of holiness for his sake, for your sake for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the glory and renown of your name. And we pray this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.